Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Let's pray. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Lord Jesus Christ, we uh, praise and thank you that you speak to us by your shepherding voice and we pray that we would hear it this morning. Please prepare our ears, our hearts, our minds, um, our wills to um, receive your word and to follow you. In your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, it was meant to be awake. Lazarus was dead and buried, tragically overcome by a, faithful, uh, sorry, a fatal illness. His family and friends have still gathered at home in Bethany, but so has he. And so their mourning has turned to celebration. And yet this special dinner is not in honor of Lazarus. It's in honor of another. It's in honor of the one who commanded the stone to be removed from the tomb and who spoke to Lazarus's cold body saying, Lazarus, come out, causing him to breathe air into his lungs once again and to wake up from four days of death. It's Jesus that they're gathered around at this dinner party. So let's enter in together, pull up a chair as it were, and observe the celebration through the perspective of each of the guests, seeing what we can learn from them. First, there's Lazarus, chapter 12, verse one. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Where Lazarus lived, literally where Lazarus was, i.e. he was there, no longer in the tomb, rather at home with his family and friends. Lazarus was there. None of his words are recorded here, but his presence alone speaks volumes because Jesus brought him to life. He's the reason he's there. And that's what Jesus does. He brings people to life, including us. When we were dead in our transgressions and sins, he raises us to new life, spiritual life in him. Our presence in the kingdom of God is entirely dependent on him, on his goodness, his power. Lazarus is a marvelous example of God's grace. So, Lazarus. Second, there's Martha. Verse 2. Here a dinner party was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served. It's easy to be critical of Martha. Um, is she distracted again by her jobs like she was that time in Luke chapter 10? That time when she was so busy, uh, busying around the house that while Mary sat at Jesus' feet, she kind of missed out on uh, listening to him? Well, possibly. It's possible that she's so busy serving, she's lost sight of Jesus, who is present in her home. We all know what that's like, of course. It's easy to be taken up with programs and rotors and duties at church and for those things to supplant what's most important, our vision of Christ, our hearing from him, 
our enjoyment of his grace poured out on us. That's worth pondering. Many of us can identify with Martha, the busyness of life, the business of life, even service in the church can so easily steal us away from our focus on Christ. So if I may um, ask this question, are you busy at the expense of worship? What drives your service at St. Paul's? Is it fear? If I don't do it, who will? Is it pride? If I don't do it, who can? Is it duty? I must do it. Is it worry? What will others think if I don't do it? Or vanity? What will others think of me if I do do it? Or is it love and adoration of Christ? But as I said, I don't want to be too critical of Martha. After all, she's dearly loved by Jesus and a faithful disciple. In the previous chapter, in verse 25, uh, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And it was Martha who replied before, Je before Lazarus was raised from the tomb. She said, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. In that, Martha is a wonderful example of confessional faith. We'll join with her as we recite the creed together. So that's Martha. Third, Mary. Verse three. Then Mary took out a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. What Martha confessed with words, Mary now expresses in extravagant devotion. She takes this expensive, fine perfume and a considerable amount of it, uh, the equivalent of a year's wages. Perhaps it was her inheritance, I, I don't know. And she pours it over Jesus on his feet, willingly, lavishly, unreservedly. She pours it out. Not on Lazarus, not on anyone else. This isn't a, a, a party favor at a dinner party on Jesus. The gift is reserved solely for him. It's a deeply intimate and personal act. Caring for someone's feet was a demeaning task. It was a, usually the job of a servant. And so Edward Clink says, it's as if her hands were not soft enough to touch Jesus. She needed to use the softness of her own hair. In sharp contrast to what Jesus would receive by the authorities and the Roman guards in, guards in John chapter 19, here Mary opens herself to shame, to magnify the honor rightly due to her Lord. So it's a, an intimate, personal act. It's also a highly symbolic act because Mary recognizes something very special about Jesus. You see, in the ancient world, anointing set people apart. Anointing was for the honor and praise of a special person in a special role. It was usually reserved for royalty, for a king. 
And so in an implicit and personal way, Mary expresses how Jesus is her king. And she is wholeheartedly devoted to him. In the next chapter, Jesus' kingship will be made more explicit and public as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on that donkey, still carrying the fragrance of Mary's perfume to cries of Hosanna, blessed be the king of Israel. But here, Mary is a beautiful example of devotional faith. The fragrance of her offering recalls the glory of God filling the temple. It's, it's holy and acceptable to God. Mary. Fourth, there's Judas. Verse four. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas introduces conflicts. He, um, he twists and distorts the truth. Why? Well, because what he values most is personal gain. Unlike Mary, for whom Jesus is the most precious thing, it's the purchase price, the economic value of the perfume that matters to him. In fact, his words are sheer virtue signaling, because actually he's a thief. He's a taker, not a giver. But notice this. Judas speaks with reason. It's just a question. What he says seems sensible, honorable even. It's convincing. He's also described here as a disciple, outwardly at least. And he's in the room, ar around the table with Jesus. What does that say? Well, surely it goes to show that pretense and distortion of the truth can exist within the church as well as outside of it. Judas is an example of how the church is imperfect. It's mixed. However we label ourselves or the church, whether evangelical or reformed or something else, there will be sin. So don't be surprised when the church doesn't function as it should. Don't be surprised when conflict emerges. That's not to say that we should be apathetic about sin in the church. Far from it. God calls us to holiness. But it is to say we shouldn't be caught off guard by it. Judas is a warning to us. We need to be on our guard against sin, both within and without. And we should be humble about it. Until heaven, every church will be imperfect and mixed. All of these people are around the table in the visible church today. What distinguishes Lazarus, Martha, and Mary from Judas is what Jesus is to them. For Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, Jesus is everything. He's their life, their, their Lord, their love. But for Judas, Jesus is a means to his own end, a tool for self-fulfillment, an instrument for gain, the name he attaches to his own ambitions. 
So of those four people around the table, if it's not too personal a question, who do you most identify with? Wherever you are today, whether you don't know what to say to Jesus and you're delighted with what he's done in bringing you to life, whether you feel anxious and distracted from Jesus, whether you can't get enough of Jesus, or you feel that Jesus isn't giving you what you really want, the best thing that you can do now, today, is to turn and listen to him. And so fifth, to the most important person at the table, Jesus himself. Verse seven, leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. In those days, people used perfume to suppress the stench of death. What Mary intended for a king, Jesus also received as anointing for his own burial. In other words, Mary is absolutely right to worship Jesus as king, yet his, king, his kingship will not be marked by glory first, rather by his enthronement on the cross as the king of the Jews crucified. In the manner that Mary poured out her perfume on Jesus' feet, Jesus will pour out himself even unto death for our sakes, for our salvation, our redemption. It's highly significant. Remember also that the time we're in, which adds weight to this symbolism in in chapter 11, verse 55, we heard it's nearly Passover. And in verse 1 of chapter 12, it's six days before Passover. Passover is a huge theme here. And Passover is probably the most significant of the Jewish festivals. At Passover, God's people were saved from death and delivered from their slavery in Egypt. But Passover is also marked by blood. On the Passover night in Egypt, the lintels and the posts of the doors of all the houses of the Israelite houses were smeared with the blood of a lamb. And all that house was spared. Here, in referencing his coming death, Jesus is identifying with the sacrificial lamb. He's, as John the Baptist described him at the beginning of this gospel, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. It's very striking to me at least, in um, chapter 11, verse 55, that Jesus didn't go up to Jerusalem with the others in the preparations for the, um, the Passover festival, for the ceremonial cleansing, it says. They were purification ceremonies, um, making you clean before you, you come to worship. And I just wonder, is the reason that Jesus didn't go up at that time because Jesus had no need of cleansing? As the writer to the Hebrews says, Jesus is one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. As the Apostle Paul says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God.
For as Peter said, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus deserves all the glory extravagantly expressed by Mary. And of course, by the way, in answer to Judas's question, Jesus is not against serving the poor. In fact, the fragrance of his offering will infuse not just a room, but the whole church, the church's worship and mission and discipleship and everything. What they and needed to see and what we need to see today is that it's in and through Jesus Christ, whom Martha confessed as the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world, that people will be led into new resurrection life. Which is why we can sing, as we, we will do in a moment, my Jesus, my Savior, Lord, there is none like you. All of my days I want to praise the wonders of your mighty love. My comfort, my shelter, tower of refuge and strength, let every breath, all that I am, never cease to worship you. Wherever you are spiritually at the moment, keep looking to Jesus. He doesn't need anything from you. He freely gives of himself for you. Yet before we go, I just want us to notice one more thing, one more way that um, Jesus' friend Lazarus offers us an example of discipleship. And it comes in those verses at the end um, of our reading, verses 9 and 10. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. It's a great irony that Lazarus's new life may cost him his life. And that is the pattern of discipleship for every Christian. Following Jesus, coming into his kingdom, means suffering like him all the way to death. And yet, in that death, Jesus' kingdom grows, still grows today. On account of Jesus' work in Lazarus, others are made alive. It's wonderful. And in the same way as you and I worship and live for Jesus, it will undoubtedly lead to opposition. Uh, it may well lead to our own hardship, our own sacrifices. That doesn't mean that something is wrong. Because at the same time as facing opposition, Jesus is at work through the trials of his people, producing life in others. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. To him be the glory. Amen.